Hey there, it's time for episode 21 of Vengeance Under Ursus, called Alcani. This is my first fictional conspiracy theory episode, and it's inspired by many of the existing UFO conspiracy theories on the net. I've hooked up some of them to the Engines universe, and I explain how the Abkhani got their foothold on Earth. It's time to hop into the Wayback Time Machine, look out 1953, here we come. Music is provided by 2012 with the song Fire Your Blanks. While I was writing this episode, I was also listening to the Prodigy's album Invaders Must Die, and the story is partially inspired by it here and there. See if you can figure it out. The included poem by Solon is dedicated to JFK, who alluded to the Athenian lawmaker during a speech to the Associated Press during a short presidency. I'd also like to thank the folks who gave me feedback and the emails and links I received. Okay, let's go. Previously on Engines Under Ursus. Inside the exhibit, there was a seating area, where a looping film explained what had happened the day the Abkhani had attacked Earth. Saul walked into the dimly lit auditorium and took a seat near a spare PowerPoint. He connected up to it and watched the power trickling slowly into his Ansible three unit, privately wondering what lay ahead of him. On the screen in front of him, the movie began to play. The day before the end of the world had started, just like any other day. Saul sat back in the dark auditorium and watched the movie begin to play. All around him in the dimly lit room were images and scaled models of the Abkhani, which had emerged from their underground layers. In the auditorium, there was even a special walled-off area where visitors could walk through and reach out and touch the scaled models. Over 500 individual species types had been discovered by the time the attack had ended, and many had speculated that there had been thousands more unaccounted for. Some of the Apkani were more fearsome than others, ranging from new exotic plant types to eight-winged, slug-like insects with razor-sharp teeth. The fearsome Apkani warriors which had emerged from the sinkholes had slain the human occupants with relative ease. On the movie screen in the auditorium, a picture of the Earth appeared, and the camera viewpoint moved, switching to the far side of the Earth's moon. The Apkani had arrived on Earth in the 1950s, and a Human Alliance-inspired movie began to play, explaining what had happened. A set of words were displayed in a simple Times Roman font, clear white letters revealed on a black surface. Sometimes the worst decisions are made with the best intentions. The words disappeared, and then the movie continued. On the far side of the moon, hidden away from a young Earth's prying telescopes, there was a small flash of light, which appeared momentarily, and then disappeared. There was no defensive battle grid in space, nor spacecraft queuing up to land on Earth. Franklin had not yet been constructed. The Earth was a clear blue dot in the darkness of space. It was a young world which had not yet developed space technology, nor recognized the existence of alien life. However, near the moon, there was movement. A Cotasian vessel ascended out of a large asteroid impact crater, and then disappeared, cloaking as it rounded the moon. It descended into the Earth's ionosphere to recharge, accelerating to several thousand kilometers per hour, almost instantly. The vessel was automated and controlled directly by a machine-based Cartesian hive mind, reducing the need for staff on the small research base, whose staff numbered no more than several dozen reticulants. 
Earth observation oversight had been given to the reticulans by Katazik, and it was seen as a great honor. The best teams had been picked from the Zeta Reticula prime pools within the major caverns complex. Progress by the teams had been good and had required little oversight. The reticulans had worked in their usual dedicated manner, documenting the progress of the young world of Earth, which had not yet achieved space travel. However, the world had recently marked an important turning point. The Americans had ended a war in the Pacific region by using nuclear weapons, and this had marked a watershed in the young world's development. In one of the many underground holographic recording rooms, hidden on the far side of the moon, Dr. Chulu, of Zeta Reticular Prime, added the finishing touches to his ongoing research series, Earth and its People. It had been received very well across Kutaze and had been viewed by billions with interest. The current episode was called Battles of the Pacific War. Dr. Chulu was standing on the wooden deck of a simulated U.S. aircraft carrier called the USS Enterprise. The large, flat-top ship was located off Okinawa Island and was being attacked by kamikaze pilots. He walked across the flight deck, witnessing the bloody fight between ships and planes, and calmly narrated. Near the end of the Pacific War, between the U.S. and the Japanese nation, a new tactic was developed, where Mitsubishi M62s, commonly called Zeros, were packed with explosives and attempted to dive-bomb the advancing American ships, said Dr. Chulu. A Zero crashed into the wooden structure of the American carrier, and bloody mayhem ensued, followed by a massive fireball. Chulu paused the recording and rewound it, bringing the Zero from the ship, placing it slightly above it. Inside the cockpit was a frozen image of a young pilot, with his teeth clenched and his hands wrapped around the steering mechanism. The Zero had its flaps open and was expelling fuel, which would soon help form the fireball. Chulu continued. Although this tactic did cause damage to the American fleet, it was later used as the justification by President Truman for using nuclear weapons on mainland Japan in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and quickly ended the Battle of the Pacific region. The loss of life in terms of young pilots was also great. Chulu hopped onto the wing of the frozen Zero, only feet away from the deck of the U.S. carrier. The Japanese pilot was trained in a Shinto code, which decreed that there was honor in death. A point to note about humans is their tendency to resort to extreme action when they feel their way of life is at stake. Many high moral beliefs are quickly disposed of, and therefore it is important to understand this when dealing with humans. Therefore, contact with humans must be done very slowly and carefully to prevent them from resorting to extreme actions, such as this. Chulu jumped off the zero. End recording, he said, and the image disappeared. He returned to his small office. Dr. Chulu had reprogrammed all the walls of his office to show live feeds of the fledgling Earth television stations, the majority of whom were being broadcast by the Americans. The recent innovation of Technicolor was an important step and was now being shown in movie theaters. He watched the Earth fashions and his eyes opened wide with interest, noting the sharp suits that were all the fashion in 1950s America. Chulu locked the door to his office and slid open a wardrobe of jumpsuits, but in the corner was his custom-made Earth suit. He slid it on with a guilty pleasure and then tied a knot in his tie, sliding it into place. He looked into a mirror, thinking how sharp he looked, 
and rubbed the crease of his hat with two of his three fingers. He then looked at the image of his fallen friends on earth, and thought that maybe with the right reskin he might be able to pass as one of the humans, and possibly save his friends. The ship of his fallen comrades had crashed over a nuclear test facility during an electrical storm in New Mexico, and his friend Joel had been taken captive by the Americans. They had even flown over Washington in 1952, scanning for his presence, but he had not been found. Chulu privately feared Joel was now dead, but hoped it was not the case. However, the plan stewing in his mind was pulled apart as all hell suddenly broke loose. Warning! Unidentified craft entering quarantine zone, said the mind. Contact with Earth by unidentified ship. Imminent. If Chilu could have let out a scream, he would have. Contact with Earth? Alien? Contact on Earth? It would destroy everything and ruin the course of this young world. He unlocked his door and began to run to the assembly point. It cannot happen. No, it cannot, he thought. Dim and John were already on their assembly point by the time Chulu arrived. He jumped onto his assigned red dot position between the junior members of the team. They stood looking at him curiously as alarms rang around the base. They were dressed in slick, body-hugging jumpsuits which made them look almost like alien superheroes. Why are you dressed like that? asked Dim. Chulu looked at his suit, realizing he had not changed out of it. Research, said Chulu in a short manner. However, the two other reticulates looked at one another, privately thinking Chulu had lost his reasoning and had become too close to Earth culture. Jump, insisted Chulu, and then all three were gone. On the far side of the moon, Chulu, Dim and Jun sped away from the surface inside fast-moving bubble ships on an intercept course with the unidentified ship. The invading craft had already broken through the Earth's ionosphere, and was picking up speed, making no attempt to slow down or mask itself. It seemed intent on being tracked by the humans. Chulu sat inside his bubble ship, in a single seat, the strong force field protecting him inside, but giving him an almost window-like view of the outside. He used the holographic console to summon a larger ship which decloaked within the ionosphere, and rushed up to meet them. Chulu joined with the hive mind of the ship, which was already sending out messages to the rogue ship. The ship is not responding to our hail. Classification unknown. Occupants humanoid. Probability is high. The bubble ships moved inside the field of the cruiser as it closed in on the rogue ship, and their memory-formed shells merged until the reticulans were inside the cruiser now. Issue a final warning, said Chulu to the hive mind, and it did. Chulu could see the silver outline of the ship now as it began to move over the land known as America. It would soon be within their primitive radar system, and they would dispatch their fighter jets. Chulu shook his head. Sometimes there was no point in being reasonable, and he ordered the mind to fire a warning shot across the bow of the ship. However, the warning shot was replied to with almost lethal force. Chulu's ship shuddered as the intruder craft fired a shot directly back at their craft. The Cutesian ripple shields absorbed as much of the blast as it could, but the mind informed them that their shields had been depleted by 16.8%. The shot clearly had lethal intentions. The three reticulans formed a single thought in their minds and issued it to the hive mind. Invaders must die! 
A charge rippled around the side of the Cretaceous cruiser and joined into a single beam which blasted the silver ship with such force that it spun out of control, arcing in a death spiral towards a nearby highly populated area over a place called New York State. The fiery blast had lit up the clouds and made it seem like there was lightning, followed by thunder. On the ground, onlookers saw what looked like a fiery meteorite falling to the earth, followed by a glowing light. Chulu ordered the mine to push the falling craft west into a forested area, and the intruder ship finally made landfall, ploughing through trees on a small wooded hill. The intruder craft broke up into two pieces, and the craft came to a stop beside a giant pine which had stood proudly there for over one hundred years. The Cartesian craft stopped in the air above the crash scene and scanned the debris, finally discovering the deceased remains of the aliens on board. Abkhani, advanced scouting party, reported the mind. Sentinels, numbering five, deceased. Abkhani, thought Chulu, feeling a mixture of disgust and sadness that such life was now visiting Earth. Survivors? asked Chulu, checking. Wait, no time! replied the ship immediately, as it sensed a missile had been launched by an American interceptor jet, scrambled from a nearby airbase. The Cartesian ship ascended vertically within an instant and stopped in the ionosphere to recharge, leaving the slow missile with nothing to lock onto. Chulu sat back and loosened his tie. Were there survivors? he asked the mind. Uncertain, replied the ship. Chulu just nodded. He was safe, but he felt concerned for the young world and they returned to the far side of the moon. Chulu dropped his head. He had done as much as he could for this young world he had come to love. Sometimes, he realized, lessons needed to be learned, and not just taught. In New York State, radio stations had been flooded with calls from people who had either seen lights in the sky, or who had felt the shockwave from an explosion from the nearby wooded mountain slopes. There had been thunder, but there had been no rain. Window panes had rattled and some had even shattered. Official word spread quickly that what had really happened was a chemical explosion followed by a toxic spill. The area had been sealed off by the US military as the cover story was quickly put in place. Local law enforcement closed the access roads and redirected the local traffic around the site several miles away. Closer still were the National Guard and inside that a no-go red zone had been created. The area leading to the hill had been cordoned off with high fencing. No entry in or out to unauthorized personnel. It had taken only two hours for the majestic advance team to arrive. They came in unmarked vans, but were clearly military as they stepped out of their trucks. Their uniforms had no unit markings or name tags. They cracked open cases containing state-of-the-art equipment and prepared themselves. They entered the red zone, quickly setting up a mobile command center. Forming a line, they marched slowly up the hill in environment suits, spreading out a little, checking for radiation and high EM field readings. A helicopter came over the top of the hill and hung in the air, throwing a beam onto the smoking crash site littered with splintered trees. Then another helicopter came and shone its light onto the crash site, the two beams of light almost forming a V for victory sign. General James Hopkins sat in his command centre, listening to the radio traffic from the advance party walking along the ploughed trench of the Tornop Hill. The crashed ship formed a shape almost like that of a finger whose end point directed those searching to the shattered remains. 
It had been nearly seven years since they had found the remains of the fallen reticulum craft in New Mexico, and they had recovered a single EBE they had later called Jay. But Jay was dead now, and the program had lost its only living specimen. General Hopkins listened to the voices of the recovery team as they broke up, and heard the news that more dead EBEs had been recovered. There's some kind of capsule which is opening, said one of the officers, his voice nervous with trepidation. There's something inside. He paused. It's moving. General Hopkins heard the safety on the guns being clicked off. Hold your fire, damn it, he barked into the speaker. Then a pause. We got a live one, said the agent, unable to contain his excitement. General Hopkins clenched his fists and a wide smile spread across his face. Majestic was back in business again. He slammed his fist off the table and the coffee cup bunny-hopped. The liquid in the cup curved up at the edges as it lifted under gravity, almost seeming to smile. A small single-prop beach bonanza flew over the rural cornfields of Ohio, preparing to land. The July summer sun baked the land as the CIA agent and trained pilot, John Bell, prepared his approach to the rural landing strip, accompanied by a single, small hangar near the end of the dusty strip. Behind him in the plane were his import-export cover documents and his language familiarization sketches, which he had used when he had worked initially with Jay. John Bell had been recruited into the CIA at the end of World War II because of his ability to interrogate Japanese POWs and befriend them in ways his colleagues had not. He had been nicknamed the Empath by his superiors. He was also a trained pilot, a skill which the CIA had always found made a useful asset. At the end of the war, he had risen through the CIA ranks. In his late twenties, he had been given a special interrogation brief classified as above-top secret and loaned out to a black ops group codenamed Majestic, where he was told he would have an important target to interrogate. They had given him no further information other than the individual was called Jay. Every one of his generation remembered where they were when World War II had ended. For John Bell, that moment faded into insignificance to the moment when he stepped into the small interrogation room and had met Jay for the first time. Everything he had known and understood about the world he lived in had changed. It was as if his reality was merely an illusion and the truth had finally been revealed to him. The small plane landed smoothly and slowed, taxiing up to the shabby hangar. Inside it was his car, which was a red Chevrolet Bel Air series, and he was on the move again. He rolled down the window and put on his Ray-Bans, loosening his cotton shirt a little, in the hot car. The majestic brief had been short. A new asset required interrogation. John was as excited as he could be. Even during the war, when he had been shot at, he had remained remarkably calm. He had not done this consciously. It was part of his own makeup. He recalled grown men screaming, sweating and shouting while he calmly took his place by some cover aimed his gun at the advancing Japanese soldiers, who were screaming war cries, and then took them down one by one with his M1903 Springfield rifle, then returned back to working on his language translations. The only day in his life when he was close to a feeling of overwhelming emotion was his last day with Jay. Jay's words had moved him deeply, and he had never forgotten them. He drove through the small rural Ohio town, leading to his final destination. In it was a small movie theatre. There were young kids assembling outside it to see the recently released movie called The War of the Worlds, an adaptation of the H.G. Wells story 
which had been released in Technicolor. He switched on his radio and Frankie Lane was singing, I believe. Everywhere there was UFO fever, and the movie had acted as a focal point. The year was 1953. He left the town, and the straight road stretched on. The new target was called X. One hour of clear driving lay ahead of him, and then underground to an uncertain future. He smiled a little. It was the way he liked it. On a lonely highway, John Bell turned his car up a dirt road that stretched on for several miles, and came to a gate with a no trespassers sign. He got out of the car and unlocked the gate, then moved the car forward and locked it after him again. The rolling fields of corn moved gently to the light breeze, and he drove some more. Eventually, some miles later, he came upon the deserted farmhouse and a modest wooden barn. He parked the car in the barn with the plastic cows and farm animals, then walked into the house using a key to enter. He walked to the old freezer and pulled down the cover to the icebox. At the back was a pressure button, which would stay pressed for only several minutes. He pushed it and closed up the fridge, locking up after himself, and then returned to the barn. By the side wall of the barn was a loose panel, freed by the pressure button. He lifted it, and inside was a panel with digits, and entered the 20-digit code he had memorized. He then sat back into the car and waited. Slowly, the car began to descend to a lower level. He got out of the car, and it was returned to the barn again. John then stood in front of a set of elevator doors, and then looked into a camera. A voice came with a challenge code, and John responded with the passphrase, Mercury falling. The elevator doors opened, and he stood into the elevator with no buttons. He descended. The doors opened and he was immediately met by two guards. One had his service revolver aimed at John's head, while the other searched him and passed a metal detector over him for any hidden devices. He lowered his hands and was given his bags again. He then sat down in a small cubicle, and a copy of his thumbprint was taken and painstakingly compared against his service record. It checked out and he entered the inner sanctum of the underground base, wearing an admission badge with just a set of colour codes on it, and no name. John sat on a small cart that looked remarkably like a golf cart and drove almost half a mile to the recovery section and interrogation rooms, passing by a large picture of newly elected President Eisenhower and his quote underneath. History does not entrust the care of freedom to the weak or the timid. He recalled Eisenhower's inauguration speech, which had started with a prayer and nine principles. He talked about the threats to the freedom of the world. He had never mentioned the word communism directly, and knew it would be assumed, but the references could have also included other dark forces. Truman had most likely explained the majestic program to the new president-elect, probably even showing him the New Mexico footage in the small White House cinema. John Bell had interpreted the speech as a silent nod to the work done by Majestic, and smiled a little. It was good to be home again, and making a difference to those that mattered. The president's words, Defending freedom in the world echoed in John Bell's mind. Bell went through the heavy blast-proof door and it shut slowly behind him. The air had a foul smell and he walked over to General Hopkins, who was overseeing the reassembly of the crashed craft in the large underground hangar. Technicians were poring over the pieces in environment suits. General Hopkins watched with folded arms and a fixed stare which was broken by John's arrival. The general nodded. So, you made it, he said, not sounding too surprised. Bell nodded. It's hot as hell out there. Hopkins nodded. 
Expect it to last for the rest of the week, according to the weather boys, he said. We've been piecing this together for the last few days. I haven't been up to the surface since we got it. Reticulum? asked Bell. Hopkins shook his head. No, more advanced. Looks like a drive system that could be used for star jumps, too, he paused. So I've been told. We might have the real deal here. Not some self-destruct reticulum drive system designed for low-earth travel. Office of Naval Research got wind that we have it. They're like dogs, chasing after some juicy bones. Secretary of State told us sharing is caring, so we're going to have to move it to a common share point. He snorted like someone whose nose had been put out of joint. But not before we get our intel. We found it, so we get first divs. Then we move it. To where? asked Bell. New facility near Groom Lake place called Area 51. They're developing our latest Black Ops jets there, and have some hangars we can use. They're mining out some accommodation for us, too. Miles of it. Some tunnels so big, you could run a fleet of trucks through them. Times are changing, John. What do you mean? asked Bell. When I told the Secretary of State that we had an EBE, he just said, find out what you can. Then he hung up. Genie's out of the bottle now. Alien life is old news to the brass. That was until I told them how it happened, said Hopkins, who smiled a little, enjoying the twist. Bell gestured in a curious way. So what's new about this? It was shot down, said Hopkins. By us? No, no. By the reticulants, from what we could make out. Radar picked up energy discharges between the craft. The wretch shut it down, John. Right in our very own airspace. It's Star Wars, John, in the skies above New York State. Bell eyes opened wide with almost childish amusement. Star Wars? Now that sounded cool, but also very dangerous. His mind filled with galaxies full of warring aliens. What a crazy thought. You ready to meet X? said Hopkins. We recovered one live one inside some kind of emergency capsule. As I'll ever be, replied Bell. John Bell stood outside the guarded door to where X was staying. It was the same room he had spent several years interviewing the reticulum called Joel, who was codenamed Jay. He reached forward to open the door, but his mind switched back to the first time he had met Jay, and how he had spoken telepathically to John, an experience he had found strange at first, but had settled into it over time. To the outside observer through the plate-glass one-way mirror, it seemed like Bell was chatting to himself while looking at Jay. The reticulin had sat there impassively, a little over five feet in height, while transferring its thoughts into Bell's mind. Research had shown that Jay had some kind of crystal implant in his skull, which reached into Bell's mind and altered his brainwaves in order to hear his thoughts. They were not aware at that time that this was Cotasian technology, designed to alleviate the need for a universal translator which could be cumbersome and awkward during field operations. Jay had been weak when Bell had made first contact and had helped him to find a way to sleep. Bell had made sure that the room had a temperature-regulated tank installed in the room, and Jay gave Bell the list of chemicals that needed to be added to the water, which included things like various salts and minerals, which Jay used to feed upon. Jay did not eat but absorbed nutrients through its grey skin and needed to rest at the bottom of the tank for several hours at a time. 
Hopkins had nicknamed Jay's bed as the fish tank, and a cover was installed to filter the light coming in, so it would be a violet blue, similar to Jay's homeworld pools on Zeta Reticula Prime. Bell had been told that his number one priority was to gain access to Jay's knowledge, and many sessions involved finding out about Jay's homeworld and their technical capabilities. Hopkins leaned on Bell to push Jay for more answers, and in one exasperated session near the end, he demanded to know why they would not trade. We must have something you need, said Bell. Your world is a safari to us. We are here merely to observe development. I do not understand why I am still a captive. We have not harmed you or your people, said Jay. We've been over this a dozen times and more. You flagrantly invade our sovereign airspace, which we deem to be a threat to our national security. You refuse to communicate with our leaders and trade with us, but you send ships over our capital cities, which we deem to be acts of provocation, said John. Would you imprison a bird for landing on your lawn? We are here merely to observe. John nodded. We can help you observe safely in return for some technology transfer. Our leaders are not unreasonable. He glanced over at the one-way mirror, knowing Hopkins was watching. Would you give your child a gun to play with, John? asked Jay. We are not children, said Bell. You are not spiritually enlightened enough to know what we do, nor technologically developed. Our knowledge in the wrong hands on your world would destroy all life here. You must develop your own knowledge slowly and understand the perils of it as we did. John sat back. The answers had all been the same. Our leaders are concerned you wish to invade our world. How can you prove to us that this is not true? By working with us in some capacity, we can allay those fears. Maybe we can start with something other than weapon systems. Food or crops, perhaps. My answer remains the same, John. I cannot help you. Bell sighed. It was going nowhere. Jay spoke up. This will be our last meeting, John. I have very much enjoyed your company. Your commanding officer has been instructed to send me to another facility, where others will use a virus on me to see if it will kill me. They have been studying the nutrients in my fish pool, as they call it, to understand my weaknesses. I have seen their thoughts. I don't know what you're talking about, said Bell. We wouldn't do something like that. You have my word. I know you would not do something like that, John. You are a good man, but your world is new and full of perils and full of fear. I'm not afraid of death. I wish we had met under better circumstances than this. I came to this world because I love life. I do not blame you for what will happen to me. I understood the risks when I volunteered to come here. Your leaders need to be more spiritually enlightened than this. But this will happen over time. I must rest now and make peace with myself and this world, said Jay. The reticulant stood up and returned to its tank and disappeared under the warm waters. Bell stood up and left the room, feeling a mixture of confusion and sadness. Hopkins walked over to John and put his hand on his shoulder. You did the best you could, John. We're going to be moving Jay to a new facility. It's for the best, said Hopkins. What? said Bell. But there's so much more I can find out. Hopkins shook his head. Orders from the brass. We've done all we can here. 
Why don't you take some leave? You've earned it, said Hopkins. The general walked off, and John felt alone and empty. It wasn't supposed to end like this, he thought. We're not the bad guys. Jay had gone in 1952, and now it was 1953. A new president and a new alien to interview. Bell opened the door, and the first thing that hit him was the stench in the room. It reminded him of a swimming pool chlorine smell mixed with sulfur. The food in his stomach began to churn. Sitting by the same table where Jay had once sat was X. The fish tank was covered over and bone dry. What looked like a human bed lay in its place where X had rested. Its skin was a dark brown, and its curving eyes were large and black, but it had what looked like a snoutish nose, and a mouth which had lips, and possibly teeth. Bell's eyes began to water a bit, and he put on the goggle and face mask. He stopped for a minute, waiting for some kind of telepathic voice, but there was none, and he sat down at the table, and took out his cards with pictures associated with words. I am John, he said, showing a picture card of a man with the word John on it. X just looked at the card and then took it, flipping it over. The alien took John's pen and began to draw a picture on it. X spoke in an alien language and pointed at the drawing. It was a picture of a craft and a device on board it. X pointed to his mouth and then to John's ears on the pictures. He flipped over the card and showed John the device. John nodded, understanding what X was asking him. He got up and left the room. Hopkins came over to him. Problem? he asked. No, replied John. We need to find this item in the debris. It's some kind of translator. It took no more than twenty minutes to find the device, which lay amongst the debris, and John brought it into the interview room and placed it between himself and X, slightly to John's right. X ran his padded fingers over the device and it changed colour. Then X spoke and the device translated. We are Apkani. Bell sat back a little, slightly puzzled by the plural response. I am John, he pointed to himself. First contact with the Apkani, thought John. I've just made first contact. What is your name? he asked the alien. We are Apkani replied X. Why have you come to Earth? asked John. Our craft was shot down by the reticulants, replied X. Why was your craft shot down? asked John. We are at war, replied X. At war with who exactly? asked John, looking for specifics. Those who will invade your world, we have come to warn you. We have come to help you, said X. Where is your homeworld? asked John. We come from Betelgeuse, in the constellation of Orion. Your world is in danger. I have been sent here to help you, said X. Help us? How? asked Bell. We can show you how to shoot them down. Shoot who down? queried Bell. Our common enemy, the Reticulans said X. Bell sat back, unable to believe his ears. After years of painstaking questions and answer sessions, Jay had refused to help them. Now, within less than ten minutes of meeting X, they were already talking about building some kind of Star Wars weapon. It seemed too good to be true. 
Bell imagined Hopkins at the head of a marching band with a smile so wide that it dazzled everyone. It was as if all his Christmases had come at once. I can show you, said X, and he began to draw what looked like a giant radio telescope that had holes in it. We must start with this to measure your ionosphere. This is where they hide and gather energy from your planet. What do you want in return? said Bell, staying X's hand. X stopped drawing. Food and shelter for now, said X, and he continued to draw. First, let us cooperate. I need more paper. John was already on his feet. He left the room. Hopkins stood outside with a satisfied smile. What do you think? asked Bell, sweating a little with excitement. I think we're in business, John. Work with X to draft an outline agreement, and I'll get the Secretary of Defense online to get executive buy-in. Hopkins turned and marched off as the officer on duty brought John some more paper. Hopkins raised his right hand as a salute as he walked away. Then let's shoot down some of those sons of bitches. His voice echoed proudly in the cavern-shaped tunnel. Time seemed to move in fast motion for Bell. X completed the prototype radio telescope design and included some math calculations for review by the scientists. The initial prototype was designed to both read the strength of the ionosphere and also fire a concentrated charged electrical beam into the ionosphere to disrupt the drive system of the reticulums. X then began to work on an outline agreement of the Abkhani's needs, which included a scientific base where they could work together on different research projects and improve each other's understanding of one another. A second base was also asked for, similar in nature to a secret embassy by the Abkhani, where they could conduct their own earth research and included the examination of human subjects who would remain unharmed. Some animals would be taken and examined also, and dissected. The first base settled upon was in Area 51 for cooperative agreement. The second home base, chosen for the Abkhani, was in the underground caverns on Puerto Rico. Above ground, situated on top of a giant sinkhole, would be the place where a radio telescope would be built to initially measure the ionosphere and test out the design. Puerto Rico was the perfect place for the Abkhani, and initially offered to them, amongst others, including the giant cave system in Kentucky. Puerto Rico was preferred because it had a large U.S. military base nearby, and it was not in mainland USA, but was in their sphere of influence. It had the third largest underground cave system in the world where the Abkhani could find a safe underground home. The island was also littered with massive sinkholes covered with dense vegetation, leading miles underground where few brave souls would dare venture into. Numbers of the Abkhani were strictly capped to several dozen in the agreement and no harm was to come to any of the humans who were taken for study. Bell did not witness the signing of the agreement and only heard that it had been green-lighted as Hopkins had said. Across the world in the intelligence services, a strange message flooded all the connected messaging systems. It simply read, The Abkhani cannot be trusted. Stop. Bell got word of the message and asked Hawkins about it. The Reds had their chance to do a deal with us, John, and they blew it. He replied trenchantly. Now, they're going to reap the whirlwind. You are going to be my eyes and ears, John. I want you to liaise directly with X. What he needs, he gets. Our science division will send you questions which X will answer, and you will return those answers to me. I'll get my people to send them on to science division. No one knows about X except us. The Area 51 working group will have above top secret clearance, and they will deal with any Abkhani newcomers. The rest have only Q&A access through me and you. Oh, and we're promoting you to divisional head of extraterrestrial operation. For now, this group is just you. Our budget is open-ended. 
our highest priority is to design a device to protect our airspace against the Reds, so they can't do what they did in 52 and fly over the White House with impunity. Bell nodded. John Bell sat in his underground quarters and thought about what Jay had told him before his visit. He wondered privately if X could be trusted. The message from the reticulants said otherwise. But Bell knew they lived in a world where trust of any kind was in short supply. The Japanese had conducted a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor and killed thousands. The Nazis had murdered millions in mainland Europe and would have killed more if they had not been stopped. In Russia, millions of undocumented had died and were still dying in Russian gulags. The communists were also aggressively planning to topple democratic governments. The Red Menace was on the move. Could they have simply turned down this offer of help? The reticulans seemed to have no respect for human power structures, even if their motives did not seem aggressive. What effects was right, that the reticulans were planning a sneak attack and they did not build this device? Maybe someday it might help save the Earth from extinction or even slavery. Then the Earth Wars would pale into insignificance. However, Bell remembered Jay and had found him to be a spiritual being. Maybe we've done a deal with the devil, thought John, or maybe we've just helped save the earth. He preferred to think the latter and put his head down on his pillow and slept. One way or another, they were going to rebuild a brave new world. They were going to make it a safer place and protect the country he loved. Seventeen years passed. The year moved to 1970. Some still thought the Vietnam War could still be won, and Apollo 13 had made a miraculous landing in the Pacific Ocean after a disastrous mission. The space race was drawing to an end. Bell pushed back his thinning hair and straightened his very focals as he checked his plane's altimeter. Tricky Dicky was president, and the world had moved from Cold War to detente. There was even talk of America normalizing relations with the Chinese communists. John Bell's cargo plane made its approach to Roosevelt Road's naval station on Puerto Rico. In the back of the plane were a wide assortment of caged wildlife, ranging from pigs to chickens and even mice. X had been very specific about their needs, and Bell had delivered. No questions asked, as the deal had stipulated. As the years had passed, he had slowly been turned into a delivery man. What had started out as a meeting of equals soon became a simple exchange of documents and requests. The deal that had started out in 1953 had been mutually beneficial to both sides. The Arecibo telescope had served its purpose, measuring the ionosphere, and now had otherworldly purposes. However, the scientific community had moved on to the real military application of the Arecibo telescope, namely the development of the HARP system. The acronym stood for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program and the scaled production model was being designed for use in a remote part of Alaska and would soon be used to test shooting down the infrequent but pervasive UFOs. All Bell had heard was that they were getting closer with each passing year. However, X had remained in Puerto Rico in his underground embassy, as he called it, and Bell supplied the Abkhani with whatever they needed. A growing list of animals was added to the demands, and they kept getting bigger. Initially, it had been chickens, but goats seemed to be preferred now. A blue puff of smoke filled the air as the unmarked cargo plane landed on the long airstrip and Bell did his time-honored task of unloading the cargo and bringing the technical brief with him. Normally there was one brief, but this time there were two, each in bound leather satchels containing locks which Bell did not have any access to. All Bell knew was that the brief contained the ongoing Q&A between X and the MIC, or the Military Industrial Complex, which seemed to grow stronger by the day. 
The knowledge that the Apkani was providing was making the impossible seem possible. He'd heard all kinds of strange rumors about black ops projects being carried out in the hangars of Area 51. The abductions continued and needed continuous oversight and information control. Hopkins had set up a special group to oversee the information management of the abductions and seated all of the non-profit organizations with agents from his group. There was a healthy mixture of disinformation and information suppression which kept the whole area in the realm of the crazies and under control. Bell loaded his truck with the animals with the help of a select unit on the island who helped secretly oversee the Abkhani presence. They asked no questions as they loaded the crates and moved efficiently. All Bell received was a simple nod as he drove off towards El Yonke, which was a beautiful tropical rainforest just outside of San Juan. Puerto Rico was a territory of U.S., and the rainforest was part of the U.S. national forest system, originally set aside by the Spanish in 1876, making it one of the oldest reserves. The rain pelted down on the truck as Bell's truck climbed the winding road and went into the part of the reserve off-limits to tourists, passing through a series of locked gates and high fences designed to keep out the curious. Wildlife was surprisingly small in the reserve, but the vegetation was astounding. There were strange snakes which barked and even a frog which made the sound cookie as it called out in the shrouded vegetation. Bell backed his truck into a deep underground cave where there was an uncanny unloading section and parked there. He looked down at one of the wheels and saw that it was flat. He sighed to himself and figured he could get back to Roosevelt okay, but he'd have to take his time. It was up to the uncanny to unload the truck, and he picked up the brief, his mind focused on the flat tire, as he made his way into the private meeting room, set aside for himself and X. A red light turned green, and the door leading into the Apkani habitat opened. X was already waiting by the door. The deal was simple. Beyond this door was Apkani territory, and the room was the interface between Earth territory and Apkani territory. X sat down and was as polite as ever. John, how are you today? asked X. I'm well, thank you. And you? replied Bell. I am well also, replied X. Over the years, Bell had exchanged these empty pleasantries with X, never having really gotten to know him like Jay, who had revealed much of himself and his world. All Bell knew was what X had told him during their first few frenetic days of initial contact. I see you have supplied the foodstuffs, said X. Yes, replied Bell. All as you requested. X slid over a new list, and John scanned it superficially. His eyes opened wide a little when he saw that X was looking for cattle now. Is there a problem? asked X. No, eh, uh, no, said John. I'll look into supplying the cattle. I may need to source some kind of cargo ship. That's for me to figure out, he replied, smiling a little uneasily, wondering if they would be looking for an elephant next. X slid over the technical briefs for the MIC, and Bell gave X his brief. Is that all? asked X. Bell nodded. Everything. Have a good day, said X. And you, replied Bell. X disappeared behind the door, and it clicked shut again as protocol demanded. It would be two weeks before their next meeting. Bell left the room, and the exit doors sealed themselves again on the time lock. He returned to the truck which had been unloaded in his absence by the Apkani. There was another entrance to the Apkani habitat, and he sat into the truck, and then his eyes opened wide in panic. On the passenger's seat was another brief, which Bell had forgotten to bring with him. 
He sighed loudly, and Hopkins' words resounded in his ears. Make sure X gets this. It's our highest priority project at the moment. MIC are leaning on us heavily for some answers. John remembered nodding and agreeing with Hopkins. How could I forget? Bell wanted to slap his forehead. And then the idea just popped into Bell's head. I'll just drop it into the museum the other entrance, he thought. It won't take a minute. It had seemed like such a reasonable thing to do at the time. Bell slipped in the back entrance to the base where the caged animals were brought, following the growing smell of sulfur and chlorine. He placed a handkerchief over his nose and blinked rapidly as his eyes began to water over a little. In the meeting room with X, there were extractor fans designed to make the room as comfortable as possible for human Afghani meetings, but not in this part of the base. The metal door, which had no handle, slid left, and Bell squeezed in through the opening. Once inside, he walked down a long, arched tunnel, and it opened in three directions. He chose to go straight ahead and ended up in a dimly lit room full of empty cages. Animal hair, feces, and feathers littered the floor of the room. Some cages looked like they had been broken into, or had the metal dissolved by some kind of acid. To the right, in the long room, beyond it, were what looked like examination tables. Half a goat lay on a silver table. It had not been cut in half, but it looked like the other half had simply been dissolved or eaten away in some way. Bell flexed his jawline. Lying on the floor in another corner were dead chickens with incision marks on their necks, looking like animal bite marks. Bell wondered if he should just simply drop the brief onto the examination table, but thought it would be better to hand it to X in person and explain his error. Hello? said Bell, but there was no reply. He walked further in to find dead, headless animals hanging from chains in the ceilings, with strange holes in their bodies, like puncture marks. Off the main room was a door, which had a flashing red light in it. Bell was drawn to it. Maybe X was in there, he thought. He peered through the viewing plate, and the flickering light gave him images of a crazed-looking goat, which was running in circles and clearly in some kind of distress. Bell frowned, looking at the insects flying above the goat, dropping from the ceiling, and then seeming to land on the distressed animal. The goat eventually collapsed, twitched, and then stopped moving. Then its eye seemed to pop out. Bell winced. One of the insects in the room flew over to the viewplate, appearing to sense Bell's presence, and stuck to the glass. Its slimy mouth, which were full of teeth, tried to chew through the glass, but was unable to. Bell backed off and walked further into the base. The light was growing dimmer, and at the end of this room was an entrance to what Bell felt like was a pit. The straight human painted walls had disappeared and were replaced by uneven, carved rock. It seemed like this was an Abkhani extension. On the ground, a cloud of heavy green gas hung, and Bell was not sure how much further he could go. The walls had strange growth on it, and Bell was tempted to touch, but did not. In the darkness of the pit, John peered into it, and he saw red moving eyes in the shadows hearing them slide over a rock floor. There were familiar sounds of a cock crowing, hens clucking, sheep's bang, and even goats bleating. Bell edged forward, and it looked like they were attached to some kind of shape. Bell thought he could only see parts of the animals' heads. Hello? said John, and then he got the fright of his life. A two-legged creature leapt out of the darkness and landed in front of John. It looked like a hairless kangaroo, but it had red glowing eyes and teeth which looked like fangs. John backed away from the creature, which had menace in its eyes, and backed into X, who was standing directly behind him. "'What are you doing here?' asked X, using a translator. 
I, uh, I forgot to give you this brief, and the door was time-locked, so I thought I'd drop it into you, so we wouldn't fall behind, said Bell, his red eyes streaming a little. This is Abkhani territory. You must not do this again, said X. Of course, I apologize, said John, but his curiosity got the better of him, and he looked at the crazed-looking kangaroo. What is this? asked Bell pointing at the menacing-looking creature, which had nearly cornered him against the wall. "'This is my pet, similar to your guard-dog. I use it for company,' replied X. But Bell did not believe him, wondering what other creatures lay in the dark pit below. "'I, uh, I guess I should be going,' said Bell, and he handed over the brief. He left, trying not to look like he was panicked. When he got outside to the truck, the flat tire on it looked like the least of his worries. He leaned against the truck and began throwing up. He then leaned into the truck and took out some water and washed his red eyes with it. It was time to go home. As he flew home to the States in the empty cargo plane, he found himself having a new appreciation of the white clouds and the clear blue sky. Underneath him, the light reflected against the sea, and X's words resounded in his mind. This is Abkhani territory. No, thought John. This is my homeworld. This is Earth. He thought about what he had seen. X was not the only Abkhani. Clearly there were others he was not telling him about. Bell decided to write up his findings and report it to Hopkins. That evening he typed up his findings and attached it to the brief which would be sent on to Hopkins. He lay in his bed that night and found it hard to sleep. Tomorrow he would go over his findings with Hopkins and figure out the next steps. The meeting with Hopkins was not what Bell had expected. Instead of meeting with Hopkins one-on-one, -on -one, there was another agent in the room. John, I'd like you to meet Agent Felix Muldoon. He'll be joining us from the FBI. He works a lot on their more unusual cases, and we're bringing him on board to work with you. It's an honor to meet you, sir, said Felix. John felt his cheeks flush red and shook hands with the agent. But I work alone said Bell. Not any more, said Hopkins, smiling a little, but it looked forced. I want you to train Felix in. Show him the ropes. Everyone calls me Muldoon, said the young agent, with a sleepy-eyed smile. After the short introduction, Muldoon left the room, and Bell grabbed a private moment with Hopkins. You got my letter? asked Bell. Hopkins nodded, frowning. We've all got concerns, John. But, you know, we have to work with the Afghani. We have to maintain a friendly working relationship with them. They are providing us with the tech on our most important black ops. Without them, these projects wouldn't be happening. We have to get on with them. Maybe I didn't make this clear to you. Oh, and one other thing, said Hopkins. Muldoon will be their interface point from now on. First trip, let him know how it goes. After that, I've a new assignment for you. Bell's shoulders slumped in the chair. One lousy letter and I'm reassigned, he thought. That's all I ever was to these guys. A bagman. He said nothing more and stood up. My last trip. What's the new assignment? he asked. Not sure right now. I'll get back to you, replied Hopkins, looking away. Bell spent the next week with Muldoon, preparing the ship with the cattle and then took the boat to Puerto Rico. Muldoon looked on top of the world like all his dreams were about to come true. For Bell, it was like his were coming to an end. 
He thought about his career and how he had been a company man. He felt betrayed and made little conversation with Muldoon. They arrived at the island and Bell watched as Muldoon went into the time lock room and later came out with a white smile on his face. The back entrance to the Abcania habitat had been sealed off and Bell returned to the States where he was assigned a desk job sifting through UFO sightings and helping explain them away. Marsh gas, northern light effects, air balloons, crash test dummies. It went on and on. The weeks passed into months and Bell finally wrote up another letter and signed it. He walked down the quiet corridors and knocked on Hopkins' door. Hopkins opened the letter and looked up at Bell. Is this some kind of joke? said Hopkins, reading Bell's resignation. No one resigns from the agency, John. Once agency, always agency. He gave the letter back to Bell. Packed all my things, said Bell stubbornly. What's this all about? You sore about your reassignment? Is that it? I can find you a field job if the desk job is not for you. No, I'm done here. I'm not happy doing this job anymore. Hopkins snorted. Happy? You're not happy? Who the hell is? He got up from his desk and locked the door to his room, and then opened the lower drawer in his locker and pulled out a bottle of Jack Daniels. You want happy? This is happy, John. He poured two shots and gave one to Bell, who sipped it a little. We're all getting squeezed, John. Last month, MIC sent me a document for review, entitled Bosons, Applied Applications. I tried to read the document, but it was mumbo-jumbo. So you know what I did? I replied, asking, What the hell is a boson? Nowhere in this document did they bother to tell me what a boson was. But they explained their application. Then this geek came down from MIC and told me, I had an attitude problem. So I told that son of a bitch to shove his document where the sun don't shine. Hopkins swallowed his drink and poured another one. I think he took it on board. They dropped me from the mailing list. Whatever happened to blood and guts, John? Sweat on your skin. Smoke in your eyes. Shells full of gunpowder. Hair standing up on the back of your neck. Danger around every corner. Now, the best they can do is give me goddamn bosons. Hopkins went to rip up the letter, but Bell stayed his hand. I'm leaving, said Bell. Leaving to go where, exactly, said Hopkins. Home, said Bell, a matter of fact. So, you're going to sit at home? Jesus, John, do you know how ridiculous this sounds? I want to start up a mail-order business from home. Mail-order business? Selling what? Airplane models and trains replied Bell. So, that's your big plan, said Hopkins. What about all the work we're doing? Think about it, John. You and I are some of the only people on the planet who know the truth about alien life. I mean, in another life, I could have been some crackpot UFO writer, and you could have been some crazy UFO disc jockey wandering on late-night chat shows if E.T. was real. Hell, they might have even reassigned us to do it. Thing is, we know the truth, John. E.T. exists, and we're using them to make the world a safer place. We made it happen. You and me. We were there at the beginning. We made first contact with the Epcani. Safer? replied Bell angrily. The hell you say, safer? Since we signed that deal with the Epcani, I've seen a president assassinated, and Bobby was gunned down in a hotel kitchen with security all around him. 
It's like they weren't there. We're losing our best and our bravest in Vietnam, and when I walk on the streets wearing this suit, I feel like I've jumped into a goddamn H.G. Wells time machine. Every day we're building silos filled with missiles that can destroy the world several times over, and when I go out, everyone has flowers in their hair, and they're all smoking weed and dropping acid in public. But you want to know the bit that really gets me angry? Bell swallowed his drink. What? smiled Hopkins. They're getting laid and you're not? Bell did not react, but continued. I see those kids with their crazy clothes. They're the only people I see smiling anymore. I want to smile. I want to walk out into that society I've spent all these years protecting, and I want to be a part of it. I don't want to write cover stories or try to convince people they're crazy because they saw lights in the sky. I don't want happiness to be an option for me anymore. I deserve it. Everyone deserves it. I know the life I want now. We are what we do, John. Not what we think replied Hopkins. Then I want to do something different with my life. Hopkins laughed gruffly. You're still sore about the letter, aren't you? Come on, tell me the truth. Bell dropped his head, and Hopkins knew it was true. You think you're the only one who's not listened to? We're part of a big machine, and this upcanny program is like a big ball rolling down a hill. Anyone who stands in its way will be flattened. I mean, come on, John. What were you doing in their habitat? I had to give them a brief. Hopkins smarted. The one you forgot to give them, right? The important one. I told you to give them. Bell nodded reluctantly. Hopkins clenched his two hands together. Now, imagine for a moment that I did send that letter on to my commanding officer, highlighting your concerns. Well, we'd both look incompetent, and we'd both be fired. Is that what you wanted? To get me fired? Bell shook his head. I've been a good friend to you over the years, haven't I? Hell, we might even say we like one another. Hopkins laughed and Bell smiled a little. E.T. is here to stay, whether we like it or not. It is not optional. You and I do not have a say in the matter. And hell, if they want to do some freaky experiments in those caves they call home, who are we to question it? Look at all the technology we're getting from them. Jay said we weren't ready for it, replied Bell. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Jay was a son of a bitch. He believed he and his kind had a right to fly over to White House without so much as a peep. I say, this is our sovereign airspace, and I say, shoot the sons of bitches down. The world is a dirty place, John, and the universe is an even dirtier one. If we have to do a deal with some undesirable aliens to get what we want, then that's a fair deal as far as I'm concerned. Bell shook his head. No, we should be developing this technology ourselves, like we did with the space program. JFK had the right idea. JFK? replied Hopkins. That commie-loving son of a bitch? He would have shut us all down and handed the keys over to Khrushchev. And the space program? Don't get me going about our beloved space program. Who do you think built the space program? Werner von Braun, that Nazi-loving son of a bitch. He was promoted by Himmler three times for Christ's sakes and used slave labor in Germany to build his rockets. Most of those poor souls starved to death while he was up in his officer's quarter eating truffles and drinking the best wines. It's not the same, said Bell. What's so different? said Hopkins. Educate me. He threw back a shot. I think the Abkhani are lying to us. 
There were more of them than just stags. I saw this strange-looking creature, which looked like a kangaroo, and I think there were more, but I, I couldn't get a close enough look. I think they're building an army right under our feet, which they'll use to wipe us out. You have to believe me. Hopkins put his cap back on his drink. We have our best agents watching them, replied Hopkins, tapping Bell on the shoulder. Bell smiled wryly. I thought I was your best agent. He got up to leave, unlocking the door to the room and picked up a box he had left outside. Then he slowly made his way up to the guarded exit. Behind him, Hopkins stood by the door to his office. Don't you walk out on me, mister. You go through that door and there's no coming back. The guard on the door put his hand on his service revolver, wondering if there was some problem. Bell met the security guard's confused look. They'd had coffee together many times. Sir? said the guard, looking at Hopkins, and then Bell, who was approaching them. Just let this son of a bitch go! he shouted, and then slammed the door to his office. Hopkins sat at his desk, looking at the resignation letter. He wondered how it would look for him. He would be next if he didn't get this situation under control, and fast. Slowly, he lifted his phone and made the call. Another person answered with a simple, Yes? And Hopkins closed his eyes as he spoke, rubbing them with his fingers. I need some clean-up ASAP. Name? replied the voice. He paused and then gave John Bell's name. There was another pause. Yes, I have an address, replied Hopkins. He pulled out his notebook. He'll be at home. John Bell was watching the nightly news in his small home, with the neatly tended garden, proudly flying an American flag outside the porch. Walter Cronkite was finishing off the evening news in his traditional manner, when a knock came to the door of his home. He looked through the window and there was a delivery man with a parcel. Bell opened the door and the delivery man smiled. John Bell? asked the delivery man. Bell nodded absent-minded, and then the delivery man moved into his house, pulling out a gun with a silencer on it. Behind him, three other men appeared, and they took Bell by the arms and legs and carried him into his living room. A gag was placed over his mouth. They quickly closed the door, making sure they had not been seen by any of the neighbours. The lead agent put a mask over Bell's eyes, which also covered his nose, and he heard the words to the other agents, No bruises. The gag was removed, and Bell was forced to breathe through his mouth. Make a noise and you'll be sorry, said the lead agent menacingly. Quickly, the agents opened his shirt, and the lead agent took out a small gun and fired some kind of ice-shaped bullet into Bell's chest area. Bell jumped a little, but the icy particle barely made a mark on Bell's skin. Suddenly, he felt his breathing begin to become erratic as the melted chemical in the crystal moved through his bloodstream and towards his heart. He felt his muscles going numb and then cramping up. Another device was placed inside Bell's mouth and he felt his throat forced open. The barbiturate pills slid down his throat and into his stomach. Bell was beginning to convulse now, but the agents held him tight so he could not move his arms or legs. A terrible shooting pain spread across his chest as his heart spasmed and then suddenly stopped. His body went limp, but the lead agent took out his watch and waited three minutes as protocol dictated. The room grew eerily quiet. They had just killed a man in less than a minute, but had to wait three to make sure he really was dead. Each agent knew their place and had rehearsed it a dozen times. They waited patiently. The CBS news ended, and Walter Cronkite wished everyone a safe night. Two minutes passed. A third was almost there. Do nothing for the weekend? asked one of the agents. I can barbecue, 
he replied. You? Mm, watching the game, replied the other one. Okay, said the lead agent. He's gone. They released Bell on the floor and prepared the scene, taking out empty pill bottles and the prepared suicide note. All around him were half-open boxes containing model airplane and space kits, which he had ordered for his fledgling mail-order business. The agents slipped quietly out of the room. Hopkins received word of Bell's suicide a few days later. Mail had gathered in Bell's mailbox, and the neighbours had begun to complain of a bad smell. They had broken into his house and found his bloated corpse there. Jesus was all Hopkins could muster at the time when he got the news. He wanted to look surprised, but he wasn't. A week later, Hopkins received a letter from Bell, from beyond the grave, sent in case of his untimely death. He opened the letter slowly and pulled out a single, neatly typed note. On it was a poem by the poet Solon, the Athenian lawmaker who had died in 559 BC. Hopkins read the words silently in his mind. The man whose riches satisfy his greed is not more rich for all those heaps and hoards than some poor man who has enough to feed and clothe his corpse with such as God affords. I have no use for men who steal and cheat. The fruit of evil poisons those who eat. Some wicked men are rich, some good men poor, but I would rather trust in what's secure. Our virtue sticks with us and makes us strong, but money changes owners all day long. At the end of the poem were the words, They cannot be trusted. Bell had signed his name and the letter ended. Hopkins' lip began to quiver a little, his heart Military veneer began to crack, and he walked over to the door of his office and locked it. He opened his drawer and took out the Jack Daniels and two glasses, placing one opposite him. Slowly, he poured two drinks, as if Bell was still in the room with him. Why'd you have to be such a stubborn son of a bitch, John? he asked. Hopkins' figure slumped as he sat passively staring at the empty seat in front of him. For the first time in his life, he felt lost for words. In the auditorium, Saul watched the narrated docudrama as it switched to the year 1988. General Hopkins had retired, but the Apcani program continued as the HARP program was established in Alaska, and laser-based systems had begun to successfully target and shoot missiles as well as fast-moving craft. The project had officially been named the Star Wars program, and no expense had been spared by President Reagan who spoke on camera candidly and sincerely to the UN about the Earth possibly being under attack by aliens and how this knowledge could unite former human enemies. The scene changed.
A three-dimensional diagram was then drawn in the docudrama, showing the network of new Apcani tunnels which had been constructed since they had arrived on Puerto Rico in the late 50s. The habitat had been secretly extended, initially using the giant cave structure under the island, but was extended to include self-contained tunnel structures under the island's mountain system. Underwater tunnels were constructed, which connected into sea caves, and became the main way for the Apcani to arrive and leave with some degree of secrecy. On a humid summer's night, X entered the extended cave structure. Apcani diggers, used to conceal the entrance, moved apart and created an opening. X walked past the stone-clad creatures and the entrance was sealed again. He walked past the burgeoning nurseries where the new Apcani were being bred, using some of the wildlife on the island, and approached the transport waiting for him. They had virtually cleared the forest secretly of its larger wildlife. X sat onto the back of a winged Apcani and it lifted into the air, buzzing its way down the long tunnel. X was both nervous and excited. It was the first time since he had arrived on the planet that the Queen would be arriving. Her quarters were more than three miles underground, and had been prepared and inspected by her sentinels, and she was finally ready to arrive. Out at sea, not far from the Virgin Islands, a bright light appeared in the sky. A giant spaceship several miles in diameter approached Puerto Rico. A smaller Akani craft left the large spacecraft and flew towards the sea, and then descended underwater, making its way to the underwater sea cave. X was waiting in the cavern when the Queen's ship arrived, emerging through the clear blue water. It was a special moment on which X had looked forward to since his craft had nearly been destroyed by the Cortesian-aligned reticulans back in 1953. The reticulans were now monitored closely by the Americans using technology that the Apcani had provided them with, and their incursions were less frequent. The first tentative steps had been taken to start shooting the reticulan ships down. The Queen was surrounded by Apcani warriors on all sides and looked like a rolled-up carpet. She emitted her loyalty scent, filling the caverns with a green gas that lay on the floor. The scent was overpowering, and X fell to his knees and bowed. Behind the Queen were her entourage of sentinels, whose skins were a dark leathery black with bright orange splotches. X could not but feel how beautiful they were. Her entourage, who never left her side, walked inside the protective flanks of the Apcani warriors who made their first steps on earth soil. The warriors looked like tapeworms that stood. They had no clear head or feet, but slid along the ground on their tail-like extensions, which were present on all parts of their body. They were asymmetric warriors with no clear kill point, which made them dangerous and unpredictable. X stood well back as they passed him and hissed at him to make way for the queen. On either side of the warriors were retractable defensive claws and blade-like extensions. Teeth that resembled many mouths were visible on either side of their flat bodies, which could extend or shorten. The tiny, bulk-like creatures which were carrying the rolls of the queen extended their wings and flew down the main arterial tunnel to the queen's chambers. The warriors extended their side flaps and flew alongside, flying in a wave-like manner. Claws extended and the whip-like tail extended at the back. In the cavern created for the queen, the walls were covered with Apcani tendrils, which were pipe-like ivy. They were a plant-like growth on all the walls of the Apcani caves and were like nerves that ran through the entire habitat, providing memory and sensory points for the queen so that the nest was almost like an extension of her entire body. She unrolled and immediately connected to the wall with her many tendrils around her, becoming acquainted with the nest structure and history. A map immediately began to form in her mind, and she immediately began to lay plans for how it would be shaped and reformed. This initial nest was too vulnerable to attack, and the construction of the prime nest would start soon, far deeper underground. She 
She absorbed the atmosphere within the cavern and her body began to fill and take shape. In the center of her giant body was a mouthful of serrated teeth surrounded by thousands of eyes. Further out still were tens of thousands of sensory tendrils which her sentinels connected to and serviced her many needs. X stood nervously outside the entrance of the nest and passed by the warrior who paid him little respect. A tendril from the queen touched his body and he heard the sent message. Come closer, my child. X walked forward towards the giant form of the queen. The guards moved sideways and X stood beside the raised tentacles of the queen. Where are the others? asked the queen. She had calculated the exact numbers within the habitat and some scent trails were missing. I sense some of my children are not present. X paused momentarily. They have left. We do not know where they are. Left? inquired the queen. How? They chose to leave. We cannot find them. They are in the cave system under the island. We had some difficulties. I wish to see, said the queen. Her long tendrils reached down and picked up X, bringing him into the central section of the queen's body. She carried him inwards on her tendrils, in the same way someone at a concert would be carried on the hands of others. Eventually, he stayed in place, and another tendril reached up to the back of X's head and connected with him, accessing his memories as if they were her own. She witnessed X's crash landing on Earth and the deal he had done with John Bell and the Earth authorities. Time moved forward, and all was as it should be, but a single thought kept reoccurring. What is this X? asked the queen. It is my name. It is how they address me, he replied. We are Abkhani, she replied, and X agreed. We are Abkhani, he replied immediately. The memories moved on to the time and place where John Bell nearly discovered the Abkhani's secret breeding program. X had reacted quickly and made a formal complaint, and the one called Bell had been replaced. The queen approved, and the memories moved on. Then the one called Muldoon arrived. He was a younger human, and the queen noticed a change in X. Friendship had developed between them. The queen became concerned. X no longer just exchanged documents as he had with Bell, who was more controlled and measured. Instead, X began to talk to the human. Muldoon showed X pictures of his dogs, his holidays, his girlfriend, who later became his wife and then bore his children. X had become curious about humanity and enjoyed his individual identity. The memories moved on. The nest continued to grow underground. All was as it should be, but this identity which had started out as a word had grown within her child and had become something more concrete. She watched as X had practiced smiling in a mirror. X wondered what other humans were like if Belle and Muldoon were so different. Then catastrophe hit the habitat. The Ukani revolted and there was civil war within the nest the bonds which held the abkhani together had been ruptured how wondered the queen and she saw an image which revealed the truth in the disposal area next to the breeding chambers carcasses of the human creatures were disposed of the ukani the kangaroo-like creatures had fed on the leftover bloody tissue but they had discovered an organ within the creatures which had resembled the queen's scent trail and they had become addicted to it they began to steal the food which was provided by the humans and placed the breeding program in danger. The Okani drained the creatures of their blood and turned their organs to pulp. 
Shots were fired within the nests, as their needs grew out of control. Abkhani turned on Abkhani as others became addicted to the narcotic substance, and the revolt was finally suppressed in a bloody battle. The Ukhani were gone, and others addicted to the animal essence as well. They were lost within the underground cave structures of the island, and fed occasionally on the surface of the island, terrifying locals and feeding on the farm animals close to their lairs, who nicknamed the Ukhani Chupacabra. The queen had not been informed about this. X had hidden the truth. The queen had seen enough. X had put her safety in danger. He had been infected with this concept of individuality, and this was why he had hidden the truth from her. She sensed his individuality and how others in the habitat had become like him. She had been away too long, and the nest required cleansing. Your work is over now, she told X. No, he replied. I will serve you. There is much to be done. But the queen tossed X into her mouth, and he screamed out, realizing his time was almost over. His voice made the sound like that of a small child. He reached out, clawing at the teeth which pushed him further into her digestive tract, but the teeth dragged him deeper until all that could be seen was his face and half-outstretched arm. He thought his final thought. I am X. Before disappearing inside her mouth, and he died as his body was torn to pieces. The queen issued an order to purge the habitat. It had been infected. The Abkhani warriors acted swiftly and cut down the existing members of the habitat. Cries of fear echoed around the nest and then slowly died down. Bodies were gathered and consumed by the queen, who grew in strength and size. The contagion could not be allowed to continue. She immediately picked one of her immediate entourage to represent her to the humans. When will we rise? asked the dark-skinned sentinel. We must prepare new nests under all of the continents. While we do this, help the Americans with their needs. Encourage them to shoot down Kotase. The Reticulans and their allies must continue to remain the enemy of Earth for us to succeed. The sentinel nodded. As you wish, my queen. Saul sat back in the auditorium as a narrator showed the spread of the underground Abkhani nests deep within the Earth's core as the decades passed. They continued to assist the Americans, whose technical power grew decade after decade. Nests were formed and new queens were secretly bred under all of the major continents. Next came nesting chambers formed deep under the major human cities. Then came the day the Abkhani had not expected. A distant Mars outpost reported first contact with the collective known as Kutaze, and alien life became officially recognized. A data disc had been sent by the commander, Blake Edwards, with details of all the different life forms. The Abkhani had been on that disc, categorized as a parasitic life form, containing case studies of what they had done in other worlds. The nest under the African continent had not yet been completed, but the other ones were in place. The queen issued the order. By sunrise of the next day it would begin. There was no time to lose. Their time had come, the day which had become known by some as the Undervasion. GMT plus three. As the sun began to rise over the ancient ruins of Babylon, where King Belshahar had once been humbled by the power of God, a new power was rising. An orange sun began to climb over the horizon, and in the city of Baghdad, alarms had already begun to wail, overtaking early morning prayer. In the historic ruins, some armed security guards looked on curiously as the ground around them began to drop, forming sinkholes leading deep underground. 
The side of some of the buildings fell away, falling deep underground, and chaos ensued. The foul air rising within them was filled with a stench of sulphur, and then the Abkhani rose. The dark, deadly features moved fast and were all shapes and sizes. Gunfire echoed around the ruins, mixed with the sound of wailing klaxons. As the sun moved westward, the sinkholes formed one after another, and the Abkhani rose relentlessly. It was eight hours before the sun would rise over New York City, but the writing was already on the wall.